Good evening. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome Jacob Howland on his return to St. John's as our lecturer this evening. Mr. Howland was for 32 years the McFarland Professor of Philosophy at the University of Tulsa. And more recently, he's become the Chief Academic Officer and the Director of the Intellectual Foundations Program at UATX, commonly known as the University of Austin. And this is, as you may be aware, a new liberal arts program being founded by Pano Canellis. Going back, Mr. Howland is an undergraduate student at Swarthmore, studied philosophy with David Lochnerman, known to some of us still as a St. John's alum, and he continued his graduate studies at Penn State University, studying with Stanley Rosen. In his long tenure at Tulsa, Mr. Howland was recognized for the excellence of his teaching, winning multiple awards, and he often taught in an honors program that focused on Greek philosophy and literature. He's also had a remarkable career as a writer. He's written several books and scores of articles on a wide variety of subjects and on a wide variety of journals. He's written on Plato's Republic as a philosophical epic modeled on Homer's Odyssey. He's written on Kierkegaard's notion that Socratic philosophical eros reflects the structure of religious faith. And he's written on the Talmud, on its dialectical and open-ended conversational form and how it resembles the Platonic dialogues. His lecture tonight is entitled, Platonic Incommensurables, Reflections on the Unspeakable Wholeness of Socrates. Please join me in welcoming Professor Jacob Howland. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. And uh, it's uh, truly an honor to see you all here tonight. Um, I know quite a few of you in the audience, and uh, I hope that what I have to say will have made your trip out on this cold evening worthwhile. Um, so uh, again, the, this lecture is entitled Platonic Incommensurables, Reflections on the Unspeakable Wholeness of Socrates. And just to help you follow it, I've broken it up into sections, each of which has a little title, so that might help. Uh, at least I hope it does. Okay, so the first section is called Incommensurable Magnitudes and Human Nature. There are two places I know of in the Platonic Dialogues where human beings are compared to incommensurable magnitudes. Magnitudes that cannot be expressed by a ratio of whole numbers, and so are said to be aloga, without logos, or unspeakable. The first is in Book 7 of the Republic, where Socrates is discussing the education of the philosopher kings. And he says, as for those children of yours whom you are educating and rearing in speech, he remarks to Glaucon, if you should ever rear them indeed, I don't suppose that while they are as irrational as lines, you would allow them to be rulers in the city and sovereigns over the greatest things. <coughs> Greek mathematicians, conceived of irrational numbers not algebraically but geometrically as a relationship between the lengths of lines. Socrates refers here to the Pythagorean discovery that the diagonal of a square shares no common measure with its sides. The second place where human beings are compared to incommensurable magnitudes is in the Statesman, where the visiting stranger from Elia suggests that <clears throat> the nature of, that our humankind possesses is naturally related to walking, just like the diagonal that's two feet in power. 
Now in this elaborate mathematical joke, the diagonal of a one-foot square is envisioned as having the power, and the word here is dunamis, to generate, when multiplied by itself, a square with an area of two feet. The joke is that this new square displays the power of the square root of two, just as being bipedal displays the power of human nature. What does this geometrical comparison tell us about human nature? The nature of an existing human being, an embodied soul or ensouled body. In explaining the image of the divided line in the Republic, Socrates says that geometricians use visible forms, making their arguments for the sake of the square itself and the diagonal itself, not for the sake of the diagonal they draw. Perceptible squares and diagonals, in other words, are images of intelligible objects. A general correspondence between the visible and mathematical domains is suggested by the fact that the two central segments of the divided line are of equal length. Whatever this might mean, it anticipates Galileo's assertion that the grand book of the universe is written in the language of mathematics and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures. But Plato suggests that human nature is obliquely related to both of these domains and is commensurable with neither. One implication of this incommensurability is that human beings are not just things or mathematically mappable, ob mathematically mappable material objects. Socrates makes the same point in the Phaedo when he recalls his disappointment that Anaxagoras, who claimed that mind was responsible for all things, explained everything in terms of material and efficient causes. Such explanations exemplify a certain intellectual blindness, as though one could account for why Socrates was then sitting in prison by speaking of his bones and sinews, while ignoring his judgment that it was best for him to be there. Anaxagoras' neglect of what Socrates calls the truly good and binding, which binds and holds together all things, motivated what Socrates calls his second sailing. Just as people who watch an eclipse of the sun injure their eyes unless they look at its image in water or some other medium, Socrates decided, quote, to take refuge in speeches and to examine the truth of beings in them, end quote, so as not to damage his soul. His recourse to speeches as to the oars by which sailors pull themselves across the sea when the wind dies is, among other things, a recourse to images which steer and propel the mind towards some otherwise imperspicuous reality. When Crito asks in what manner he should be buried, Socrates replies, however you wish, if you can catch me. I love that line. The soul blindness he hopes to avoid is in particular a blindness to the elusive soul, which is visible only indirectly in its speeches and deeds. The comparison of human nature to the diagonal of a square has other implications as well. In the Platonic dialogues, the transcendent realm of being, of eternal, universal, and unchanging truth, is frequently represented as being overhead, while the world of becoming, of time, particularity, and flux, spreads out, so to speak, at our feet. Human nature, we may say, stretches diagonally, from low to high, past to future, linking the domains of being and becoming, while being wholly at home in neither. The impossibility, or rather, the injustice of treating an existing human being as a material thing or a mathematical object is just one instance of this problem. For Plato suggests, or so I shall argue this evening, 
that the embodied soul is by its very nature a locus of incommensurability. Its work is to hold together dimensions of reality whose coherence in human life is real, but fundamentally ineffable. Plato indicates the difficulty of this work, the distinctively human work, by populating the dialogues with characters who conspicuously fail at it, including various sophists, philosophical theoreticians, and future tyrants. It is in the integrity of Socrates, whose life and death illuminates the uneven middle ground of human being, that we glimpse success, a possibility dependent, I wish to suggest, on the unformulatable logic of practical wisdom. Part two, wholeness, the whole, and the soul. To be clear, I am not denying the wholeness of the whole. Rather, I am suggesting that human beings are uniquely capable of attending to this wholeness and of manifesting it in speech, action, and production, and that doing these things is in some deep sense what it means to be human. The first of these suggestions harmonizes with Diotima's teaching in the symposium that eros, being a daimon, links the mortal and divine realms and binds the all itself to itself. It also accords with Socrates' teaching in the Republic that just as the sun's light makes eyes capable of seeing and things capable of being seen, the overflow of illumination from the good contributes the power of intelligibility to the beings and the power of knowing to the soul. It is in registering the interdependent powers of the good and the beings that the soul, opening itself to what is, actualizes its capacity as a bond of the whole. Socrates states that the son is, quote, an offspring the good begot in a proportion, analogon, with itself. But one could just as well say that this analogy is generated by the intellectually imaginative soul in its kinship with the good. Plato calls attention to the problem of achieving wholeness or integrity in one's life when he introduces the so-called third wave of paradox at the exact midpoint of the Republic. Glaucon's astonishment at Socrates' assertion that philosophers should be kings and kings philosophers is unsurprising, and not simply because, as Socrates suggests, he doesn't yet know what a philosopher is. For, no, for lovers of rule and lovers of wisdom are drawn toward radically different spheres, depicted in the cave image as the subterranean shadow land of the city and the sunlit upland of being. Life in the cave is characterized by a frenzied competition for honors, praises and prizes, evanescent local goods. But, Socrates tells Adamantus, for the one who has his intellect truly turned toward the things that are, things that transcend the city, time, and space, there isn't any leisure to look down toward the affairs of human beings or in fighting with them to be filled with envy and ill will. Indeed, the relationship of philosophy and politics seems to be one of mutual repulsion. No one or almost no one, willingly leaves or returns to the cave. The released prisoner, you'll recall, is compelled to stand up, to turn his neck and to walk, compelled to answer questions about the puppets and the puppeteers, compelled to look at the firelight, and dragged by force along the rough, steep, upward way. Conversely, those led upward to the light by philosophical education in Callipolis must be compelled to go down to the guarding of the city, to go down, as Socrates says, into the common dwelling of the others. And yet, the cave and the region outside of it are two parts of one world. Socrates makes this clear when he instructs Glaucon to connect the image of the cave with those of the sun in the divided line, likening the cave's firelight to the sun and the sun to the idea of the good. 
That act of intellectual integration answers to the underlying unity of reality that is reflected in the fractal structure and imaging relationships of the line, which is itself both divisible and continuous. But it also invites the kind of existential integration that Socrates pursues in trying to live up to the ideas in deed while directing the minds of human beings toward them in speech. Compared with his wholesome example, the philosopher who neglects the affairs of human beings is no less partisan than the politician who turns his back to the unchanging beings. Part three, Socrates' philosophical trial. My plan this evening is to consider what the trilogy Theotetus, Sophist, and Statesman can teach us about the work of holding together incommensurables in a life well lived. These dialogues, which attempt respectively to define knowledge, the Sophist, and the Statesman, present what many scholars, including me, have construed as a philosophical version of Socrates' public trial. At issue in the trial is whether Socrates is a sophist, a sham philosopher, and a bad citizen, one who is not merely theoretically lame, but ignoble and duplicitous as well. On meeting the visiting stranger from Elia at the beginning of the sophist, Socrates supposes that he might be a punishing god, come to refute us who are poor in speeches, Socrates calls himself faulos, not just poor, I think, but foul, because his speech is plagued by, quote, impurity, end quote. Just yesterday, he and Theotetus had repeatedly said, we know and we don't know, even though they were ignorant of what knowledge is. But in this case, it seems, fair is foul and foul is fair. For Plato shows that those who seek to avoid such impurity, who attempt to purge philosophical speech of all circularity and inconsistency, do so at the cost of blindness to human nature, and in particular to Socrates' excellence. Unfolding concurrently with Socrates' indictment on charges of impiety and corrupting the young, Socrates' extended conversation with the mathematician Theodorus, his teenaged pupils Theotetus and young Socrates, and the Eliadic stranger also offers an occasion to explore two intertwined questions. Who is Socrates and what is wisdom? Excuse me, who, well, that's another one. <laughs> who is Socrates and what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? As in the Republic, structure reflects content. At the center of each dialogue of the trilogy, an appropriate place to emphasize that which is especially important or especially questionable, complementary perspectives on the fraught middle ground of human being come sharply into view. In the central digression of the Theotetus, Socrates characterizes the measures of philosophy and politics as fundamentally incompatible. At the midpoint of the sophist, the stranger finds it necessary to commit philosophical parricide against his teacher Parmenides by compelling not being to be. And in the middle of the statesman, the stranger similarly compels the more and the less to be measurable, not simply relative to each other, but in relation to due measure. This talk of compulsion, I believe, underscores the impossibility of a theoretically consistent articulation of the coherence of basic elements of human existence. Part four, Theotetus, Substance and Potentiality. The Theotetus begins with a prologue that is set years after the conversation presented in the dialogue proper. Upon learning that Theotetus, now a man, has been wounded in battle and is sick with dysentery, Euclides, recalling Socrates' prophetic prediction that the lad would become renowned if he reached maturity, is filled with wonder, as well he might be, that Theotetus had become a noble and good citizen, as well as a highly accomplished mathematician, 
brilliantly uniting civic virtue with intellectual excellence is the least of it. Euclides was the founder of the Megarian school, which denied potentiality, dunamis, in holding that nothing has the power to become what it is not yet, or that whatever is, is always. The Megarians, according to Aristotle, did away with both motion and generation. Later in the dialogue, Socrates attributes to the sophist Protagoras, in whose book Theotetus had read that knowledge is perception, the secret teaching that everything is secretly in flux, is ceaselessly in flux. That teaching, which Socrates perhaps ironically describes as not a poor speech, oufalon logon, directly opposes the Megarian position with regard to motion, but similarly denies potentiality. If Protagoras is right, Theotetus could not have realized his youthful promise because there was no Theotetus, just a succession of new and different Theotetuses, each one other than and dissimilar to all the rest, and each bound up with and relative to the evanescent perception that is at any moment uniquely coming to be for it. This claim leads Socrates to wonder at one point why Protagoras asserted that man is the measure of all things as opposed to, say, dog-faced baboon. That's one of my favorite infrequent jokes in the Platonic dialogues. Rest and change, unity and multiplicity fall apart in the philosophical accounts of Protagoras and the Megarians, which comically failed to acknowledge, let alone to make sense of, their co-presence in human experience. One suspects that this kind of comedy, of which academics and other intellectuals have historically offered many examples, arises in no small part from what one could describe as a prejudice in favor of exclusively discursive intelligibility, or logos, or alternatively, from the fear of being perceived as poor in speeches. We learn early in the dialogue that Theotetus is an orphan whose guardians have squandered his ousia, or inheritance. The Greek word ousia, substance, can mean being as well as wealth. Theotetus' being resembles his wealth in that both are reservoirs of indeterminate potential and generative power. Tokos, offspring, a word that Socrates uses to describe the notion to which Theotetus gives birth, that knowledge is perception, can also mean financial interest. Socrates promises to be a better trustee of Theotetus' substance than his legal and intellectual guardians, including Theodorus, who is very pleased with the tuition he receives from the boy, and Protagoras, who acknowledges wealth but denies being. For as a midwife of souls who takes nothing from Theotetus but his speeches, knowing nothing more, as he says, than how to take a speech from another who is wise and accepted in a measured way. Socrates' concern is not to rob the lad of his human potential, or his money, but to actualize it. Socrates' conversation with Theotetus implicitly connects human potentiality with incommensurable magnitudes. Theotetus explains that he and young Socrates divided all number in two, calling the products of two whole numbers, for example, one or four, squares, and those of a greater and a lesser whole number, for example, three or five, oblongs. That is the products of two, two whole numbers that are the same number, one and four, right, squares. And those of a lesser and whole, whole, whole and a, of a greater and a lesser whole number, for example, three or five oblongs. The square roots of the former they called lengths, those of the latter powers, dunamis. Again, this word dunamis. Because they're not commensurable with those others in lengths, Theotetus explains, but only in the areas in which they have the power, which they have the power to generate. Now, the puzzle of how the multiplication of irrational numbers can produce whole numbers 
is a mathematical analog of the puzzling power of human beings to integrate incommensurable dimensions of their experience into a whole. Part five, rival choruses. Later in the dialogue, Socrates describes for Theodorus two distinct choruses of human beings. In the Republic, the encounter between the ignorant and slavish inhabitants of the cave and the free and enlightened individual who comes down from above is purely tragic. In the digression at the center of the Theotetus, that encounter has a comic dimension because Socrates caricatures both political and theoretical way ways of life as narrowly one-sided. Existence in the city is, in Socrates' account, curiously flattened. It is exemplified not by citizens and statesmen, but by rhetoricians who knock about in courtrooms. These men have small souls, compressed and twisted from their youth under the weight of great dangers and fears that bear down on them, absent the internal supports of truth and justice. They deal in falsehoods and repay injustice with more of the same. They're slaves of the jurymen on whom they fawn and of the ineluctable flow of the water clock, which strictly limits the length of their speeches. What Socrates calls our chorus, generously including Theodorus in a group that he associates with philosophy, considers the things these political men hold great to be of little or no worth. Being upright in soul and free and enjoying leisure to speak briefly or at length, they measure the adequacy of their speeches not by their efficacy in competitions for power or wealth, but only by their capacity to hit on what is. Socrates' presentation of these two groups as rival choruses in this drama, attuned to different measures of human existence, is, among other things, a subtle piece of social psychology. Theodorus is delighted with the contrast Socrates has drawn, and not just because it flatters him. His vehement agreement with Socrates' description of the derision the philosopher experiences at the hands of those who disparage intellectual pursuits, an ancient version of town-gown hostility, suggests that he is personally familiar with such ridicule. In eliciting this response, Socrates brings to light the tendency of human beings to form opposing teams and to derive meaning from playing roles within an adversarial social drama, a tendency that pushes people toward extremes and away from the moderate middle ground. In particular, the life of the apolitical philosophers, as Socrates characterizes it, seems more wholesome than that of their hyper-political counterparts, and in certain ways matches his own life. He too is straight of soul, free and at leisure. But these inwardly capacious thinkers are in their own way no less deficient than their small-souled counterparts. The philosopher, Socrates says, doesn't know the way to the marketplace or the courts or any places of public assembly. He knows nothing of laws or customs or of the pedigree of his fellow citizens. And what's more, he doesn't know that he doesn't know these things. For he holds off from them, quote, in his being, end quote. Only his body inhabits the city while his thought flies under the earth and above the heavens, engaged in geometry and astronomy, a remark that recalls the character of Socrates in Aristophanes' Clouds, who, is, who similarly ignores the middle ground of human existence. Accustomed to contemplating all of space and time, he looks down from on high on human affairs, regarding great kings and tyrants as little more than ignorant herdsmen milking peevish cattle. Sounds about right. <laughs> he doesn't know that his neighbor or even whether he, he doesn't know his neighbor or even whether his neighbor is a human being. But he knows, Socrates claims, what a human being is. Like Thales, who fell into a well while studying the heavens, the philosopher is ridiculed by the crowd as an idiot 
But when he calls up those who jeer at him and forces them to examine justice and injustice, happiness and misery, it's their turn to stammer helplessly. Socrates uses the digression to advocate at the exact center of the Theotetus for the philosophical assimilation to a god or, quote, becoming just and holy with practical wisdom, phronesis, end quote. This is deeply paradoxical. For one who closes his eyes and ears to spoken customs or written laws, nomoi, doesn't know whether he's a human being and lacks knowledge of his own ignorance, can hardly be said to exercise practical wisdom. Socrates' portrait of the philosopher furthermore conflicts with his own example of civic engagement through the philosophical examination of Athenians and visiting foreigners alike. Socrates inhabits the middle ground of political philosophy that has been abandoned by the antithetical choruses he has just described. He does know the customs of the city and the way to the marketplace where he will go that same day to answer the indictment of Miletus in a preliminary hearing at the portico of the King Archon. It is there that he speaks with Euthyphro in the dialogue that bears his name. And he knows much else besides, including the name and reputation of Theotetus' father. Part six, philosophers high and low. When Socrates returns the next day at dawn to the palestra where the mathematician Theodorus meets with his pupils, he encounters the philosophical stranger from Elia and asks him to give an account of sophist, statesman, and philosopher. But while the stranger leads inquiries into the questions who or what is the sophist and who or what is the statesman, there is no dialogue philosopher. Why not? Is there something about the being of the philosopher that resists discursive articulation, at least of the sort the stranger provides in his method of definition by division? That this might be the case is suggested in the sophist, which introduces a new framework, that of original and image, for thinking about the question who or what is the philosopher. On meeting the stranger, Socrates supposes that he may be one of the gods that accompanies human beings who share in justice and reverent awe, eidos. Looking down on the hubris and lawfulness of human beings, Socrates says. Theodorus disputes that suggestion, but perhaps having been convinced by Socrates' praise of theoreticians the day before, maintains that the stranger is, quote, godlike, for that's what I call all philosophers. Socrates replies that philosophers not, quote, the artificially philosophical, plastos is the root of our word plastic, but those who are so in their being, he says, are hardly easier to discern than gods. For they too haunt the cities looking down from on high at the life of those below, and owing to the ignorance of others, of the others, show up in various apparitions or phantasms, sometimes as statesmen, sometimes as sophists, and sometimes they give the impression of being madmen. Genuine philosophers, in other words, are lofty beings that don't look like themselves to non-philosophers who stand far beneath them, but appear to them in multiple semblances or apparitions. Is Socrates, as he implies, an artificial philosopher, a simulacrum of the original? Or is he, in spite of his apparent paltriness in speech, a genuinely philosophical original? As in the Theotetus, Socrates seems to combine both high and low characteristics. Like the genuine philosopher, he's one but appears as many in multiple partial images. Young Socrates has his name and Theotetus has his face. And while he claims to be deserving of refutation like a man who has committed some outrage in speech, he shows due reverence for at least one great philosopher, Parmenides, the stranger's intellectual father.
At a certain point in the Theotetus, Socrates observes that the inquiry into knowledge has led him and his companions into the middle ground between those who maintain that all things are in motion in every way and those who assert that the all stands still, schools of thought associated respectively with Heraclitus and Parmenides. Socrates proposes to examine these opposed hypotheses in turn, noting that if they find that both sides say nothing measured, they will be ridiculed as paltry, fauloi, should they believe that they themselves have anything meaningful to say. Yet after rejecting the Heraclitean hypothesis on the ground that it reduces speech to silence, Socrates flatly refuses to take up that of the Parmenideans. He admits to feeling shame at the prospect of examining in a crude way Melissus and the others, students of Parmenides, who assert that the all is one and at rest. But, he says, he feels still more shame, quote, before one being, Parmenides, end quote. Language that strikingly assimilates the Iliadic philosopher to his exalted conception of being. He met the philosopher, he explains, when he was very young and Parmenides very old. The man struck him as, quote, worthy of reverence, end quote, terrifying, another quote, and possessing noble depth. And he fears that they will be able to understand neither his words nor what he had in mind when he said them. Old Parmenides remains as impenetrable and unspeakable as being itself, whose eternal undifferentiated unity admits of no articulation. But the same, the same thing is true of wholeness. Socrates may be a man of parts, but no enumeration of those parts can capture their unity in this single individual. A speech about the genuine philosopher can do no more than indicate the integrity of his being. Socrates' reticence concerning Parmenides reminds us of this essential limitation of speech in relation to the substance or usia of existing human beings. The very thing that has always been Socrates' primary concern as a philosophical caretaker of young Athenians. Part 7. Practical Wisdom, Due Measure, and the Arithmetical Mean. There's another way to put this point about the limits of speech. I've already suggested that Socrates' integrity springs from his practical wisdom, which resists formulation in a philosophical logos, because it involves combining incommensurables. In the Platonic context, it amounts to putting together the best available knowledge of the universal, eternal, and unchanging idea with the best available knowledge of the radically particular time-bound and fluctuating circumstances of one's existence. A deeply paradoxical activity, because neither kind of knowledge furnishes a measure for doing so correctly. Knowledge of the idea of justice, for example, cannot by itself tell a judge with wide latitude in sentencing what punishment any particular convicted criminal should receive. Aristotle, who construes the problem of practical wisdom somewhat differently, nevertheless agrees that its logic, if that is the right word, is shrouded in the silence of intuition and settled disposition. One who wants to learn how to hit the mean in feeling and action is therefore implicitly advised, in what one might call the virtuous version of a vicious circle, to observe someone who possesses practical wisdom, someone who, precisely with respect to the articulation of this wisdom, is necessarily poor in speeches. Now, perhaps Socrates really is less than fully capable of producing philosophical logoi. He's certainly not in the habit of generating elaborate webs of words of the sort by which the stranger claims to capture the sophist and the statesman. 
Yet while some of the stranger's descriptions of the sophist are strongly reminiscent of Socrates, the sophist is not the last word in his philosophical trial. In the great myth of the reversed cosmos in The Statesman, the stranger himself identifies philosophy not with his own activity, the production of definitions by the method of division, but with the distinctly Socratic practice of dialogue. Specifically, the stranger asserts that human beings in the reversed cycle of the cosmos, when time flows backwards, and animals too possess the power of speech, would be a thousand times happier than those in the present cycle if only they used their leisure and power of association, quote, for philosophy, learning by inquiry from every nature whether each with its own peculiar capacity, dunamin, perceived something different from the rest for the gathering of practical wisdom, phronesis. The subject of practical wisdom reappears in the statesman when the stranger divides the art of measurement in two. Quantitative measurement regards excess and defect, more and less, as relative to each other. Qualitative measurement relates excess and defect not to each other, but to what he describes as the coming to be of due measure, and to the fitting, the opportune, the needful, and as many things as have settled in the middle ground and away from the extremes. As it happens, this very division occurs at the dialogue's center, as determined by calculating the arithmetical mean of the first Stephanus page and the last. But without the qualitative kind of measurement as well, the stranger says, there could be no technical expertise of any sort. Shoemakers, for example, must make shoes that fit. They would soon be out of business if they produced shoes sized only to the arithmetical mean of the smallest and largest feet. The stranger furthermore asserts that the preservation of due measure, while difficult, is necessary for the production of everything that is good and beautiful or noble, and that it is particularly with respect to due measure that the bad and the good among us differ. This is the platonic teaching on which Aristotle builds in characterizing virtue as a settled disposition to find the mean, as determined by practical wisdom, a mean that comes into being anew in each radically particular human circumstance. Now there can be no doubt which art of measurement is humanly authoritative. Socrates makes this clear when he schools Theodorus in the limits of arithmetic at the very beginning of the Statesman. When Socrates says that he owes Theodorus a big debt of gratitude for introducing him to Theotetus and the stranger, who've just finished defining the sophist, the mathematician replies that he'll owe him three times as much when they work out the Statesman and the philosopher as well. Socrates then chastises him for a fundamental error in measurement. Although Theodorus posited that the three men were equals, like the pure units that make up numbers, quote, they stand farther apart from one another in esteem than according to any proportion, analogion, of your art, end quote. Relative order, of course, can be quantified. Perhaps the philosopher is of the first rank among human beings, the statesman of the second, and so forth. Like judgments about the fitting, the opportune, and the needful, however, the determination of the estimable as it pertains to human character is not a matter of mathematical reckoning. Two more sections. Uh, section eight, images and apparitions. The problem of measurement and the status of mathematical proportion return us to the sophist, where a question arises about the adequacy of the stranger's method of division for revealing the sophist's nature. After five or six different descriptions of the sophist's technical expertise, Theotetus confesses that he still doesn't know what the sophist is, quote, in his being, end quote. 
The text's uncertainty about exactly how many definitions of the sophist the stranger has produced strikes me as yet another indication of the insufficiency of mathematical measurement in the investigation of a kind of human being or way of life. Theotetus' remark motivates the stranger to start over, which he does by reconsidering the sophist's expertise in polemical debate. In particular, he observes, the sophist seems to possess a capacity adequate to disputing about all things. Theotetus agrees, however, that no one can know everything. The sophist therefore possesses a doxastike episteme, a science of opinion or opinion-producing knowledge. Now finding himself in the Socratic position of refuting pretensions to wisdom, the stranger compares the sophist to a painter whose depictions of visible things are mistaken for the things themselves by children who view them from afar. But this analogy is questionable. In the case of the painter, the originals are well known, but the depictions are far away. In the case of the sophist, however, neither the depictions nor the originals are well known. Sorry, neither the depictions nor the originals, including essential human truths about the just, the good, and the noble, are close at hand or well understood. For the sophist enchantingly exhibits deceptive apparitions to youths who stand even farther away from the truth of things, the stranger says, than he does, making his words seem to be truly said and the speaker seem to be the wisest of all in everything. Okay, so what's the difference between an image, a cone, and an apparition, phantasma? According to the stranger, an image accurately reproduces the colors and proportions of the original. By the way, the word for proportions here is not analogia, but symmetria. While an apparition does not accurately reproduce the proportions and colors of the original. This explanation might appeal to geometricians, but it seems unsatisfactory, even when it comes to drawings, paintings, or sculptures of visible things. Unless we understand an image to be nothing other than a copy of the original, which I don't think it is. For while a copy is, so to speak, an opaque reproduction of the surface of the original, an image is a surface that provides a window onto a deeper reality, often through the deliberate deployment of paradox and contradiction. Thus, the genre of painting that bears the name image, the religious icon, is a liminal, liminal depiction through which we are meant to see some extra-spatial divine reality. The stranger metaphorically represents the difficulty of making out invisible being and truth as a vast distance that makes things hard to see. This distance, which the sophist strives to maintain, is partly a function of the inexperience of youth. For as time goes by, the stranger explains the young are compelled to fall in closely with things as they are, and through sufferings to get a clear hold of these things, so that what was appears great, what was great appears small, and what was easy hard. But, he assures Theotetus, all of us are trying to bring you as close as possible without the sufferings. Now, these remarks point toward an essential difference between sophistical and philosophical speech, including platonic images. While the sophist uses the appearance of wisdom to arrest understanding, including his own, philosophical speech uses perplexity to set the soul in motion toward the truth of things. One way it does so is by calling attention to the necessary difference between spoken images and originals, as, for example, Socrates does in warning Glaucon in the Republic that the image of the sun through which he communicates his opinion of the good may be inadequate. Sophistry elides this difference in various ways. One is to reject altogether the distinction between images and originals, 
as Protagoras does in claiming that knowledge is nothing but perception. Another is to maintain that one's speech perfectly articulates the truth of what is spoken of, in which case there is once again no meaningful distinction between the image and the original. Now there are some domains in which logos is entirely adequate to the articulation of truth. The rule of inference known as modus ponens, if P then Q, P therefore Q, offers no challenge to Parmenides' assertion that, quote, it is the same thing to think and to be, end quote, which seems to imply that what is, is intelligible. And, given Parmenides' identification of what is utterable, phaton and thinkable, noeton, capable of rational articulation, right? So what is, what is is perfectly intelligible and capable of rational articulation. This is what I gather, if I've understood, which is, of course, a big question, Parmenides' philosophical poem. But the converse, that what is oligon is not, right? What is not capable of rational articulation is not, is the foundation of the paradoxes that Parmenides' student Zeno advances to deny the reality of motion on the ground that it's incomprehensible. And the most elegant of these paradoxes is is uh, where he observes merely that the arrow in flight is neither in the place where it is nor the place where it is not. I love that one, right? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Right? Yet arrows do fly, and their lethality is an entirely effective if wordless refutation of their unreality. Parmenides observes that nothing can be said of absolute nothingness, not even that it's inexpressible, for it is in no way whatsoever. But his insistence that not being is entirely unthinkable and unsayable gives the sophist ammunition to dispute the claim that he utters falsehoods or generates apparitions in speech, for that would amount to asserting what is not. The stranger therefore realizes that it will be necessary for us in defending ourselves to put the account of my father Parmenides to the test. And the word he uses is bazanidzain, which can also mean questioned by torture and forcefully to contend that not being in some respect is, and in turn that being in some way is not. Now this language of force and even violence brings to mind the Republic, where individuals must be compelled to leave and then return to the cave, and the statesmen, where the more and the less must be compelled to be measured, not just in relation to one another, but in relation to due measure. It would appear to be impossible to occupy and defend the middle ground in human life without a fight of some sort. That observation may seem banal in our age of political extremism, but the stranger almost takes this literally, for he begs not to be regarded as a parasite, as though the philosophical impurity of saying that not being in some way is, and being somehow is not, implicates him, as seemed to be the case with Socrates, in a kind of moral pollution. One might be tempted to conclude that one cannot catch the sophist without being a sophist oneself. But this is an overstatement. It would be safer to say that the possibility of philosophy goes hand in hand with that of sophistry. Unless being and not being mix, there can be no distinction between image and original. For both are, but the image is not the original. The metaphorical death of Parmenides is thus also the birth of images, without which we have little or no philosophical access to originals. For to the extent that the being or usia of Parmenides himself appears to us, it does so by way of images, including the picture Socrates paints of him in the Theotetus. Yet the mixture of being and not being also gives birth to apparitions, right? Fan, you know, phantasms, phantasmata, 
which cannot be decisively distinguished from images except by comparison with the original. So you see you've got this incredible problem, right? You mix being and not being, and you get images, but you also get apparitions. And the problem is an apparition looks exactly like an image. How can you tell an apparition from an image? You've got to look at the original. You want to talk about circularity? Parmenides could be forgiven for wanting to avoid this mess, but Plato sides with the stranger. The fact that the stranger's remark about parasite occurs at the very center of the sophist connects it with the Socrates' invocation of practical wisdom at the center of the Theotetus and the stranger's introduction of due measure at the center of the statesman. Practical wisdom and due measure are evidently not only consistent with impurity of speech, but require it. Finally, section 9, Plato's image of Socrates. At the beginning of the sophist, Socrates observes that to some philosophers seem in no way estimable, while to others they seem to be worth everything. Perhaps the stranger's understanding of images and apparitions will help us to gauge Plato's more measured estimation of Socrates. The stranger remarks that if an artist reproduces the true proportions of a beautiful thing in a very big sculpture or painting, the upper parts will appear smaller than they ought to and the lower parts larger because we see the former at a distance but the latter close up. If he wants the viewer to perceive the true proportions of the original, the craftsman must therefore adjust his depiction to take this perspectival distortion into account. In other words, he must produce an apparition instead of an image, because remember, an apparition, an image reproduces the correct proportions, an apparition distorts the proportions. Now remember, he said, when you're standing close up, right, when, you, when you're looking, the upper parts are small and the lower parts are bigger than they should be. But that assumes that the viewer is standing close to the sculpture or painting and looking up at it. The same phenomenon would occur were the viewer standing close to anything that's very big and looking up at it. And we recall that the stranger did tell Theotetus that he was trying to bring him as close as possible to the truth of things. Now the sophist himself was supposed to be one of the greater things, that's a quote, which is why the stranger began his search for the sophist with a model, the angler, selected from among, quote, the paltry things, ton faulon. The philosopher, too, is one of the greater things. Indeed, the stranger refers to Parmenides as the great, homegas. But he makes it clear that while both the sophist and the philosopher are hard to see, we view them from different perspectives. The sophist runs away, he says, into the darkness of non-being, while the philosopher is hard to make out because of the brightness of the divine region where he dwells. In other words, we look down on the sophist and up toward the philosopher. A spoken image of the sophist or the philosopher will have to adjust for these perspectives if it is to reflect the true symmetry of the lower and upper parts. Perhaps this explains the stranger's emphasis on his method of division. He may be inclined to exaggerate the technical character of philosophy in an attempt to make the head of the philosopher, the stranger's head, appear larger than it truly is, so as to seem to be symmetrical with his feet. But that distortion is necessary only insofar as the philosopher is regarded as godlike, right, up there, the way Theodorus regards the stranger. This speculation to one side, Socrates is to be found neither in the brilliant light of the heavens nor in the black night of Erebus, regions undisturbed by paradox or contradiction, but rather in between being and nothingness. He stands in the middle ground of human existence where the high and the low meet in twilight, and his task is to hold them together. There is an optimal vantage point from which to view this work, one that sees it whole and does justice to its inner symmetry. That would be the perspective of one who neither exalts nor despises the philosopher, but sees him for what he is 
This is the moderate image of Socrates that, all things considered, Plato presents in his dialogues. Thank you. Wow. Thank <laughs> you.